Matthew chapter 7, in verses 24 through 29, Jesus ends his sermon this way. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Remember the theme of Jesus' great sermon. It's been true righteousness beginning in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And at the end of the sermon, Jesus outlines three tests that prove the genuine righteous citizen and the counterfeit citizen in Christ's kingdom. We see the test of self-denial in verses 13 and 14. The test of spiritual fruit in verses 15 through 23. And now we see another test. It's the test that we might call permanence. We might even call the test obedience. Jesus speaks of two builders who represent two men in this life. They both use the same materials. They probably are going on the same floor plan. And the world is hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two. But a raging storm comes. This raging storm is the time of testing. And the house not found on the rock, the one that isn't on the sure foundation, crumbles and falls. One survives the test. One fails the test, and experiences utter ruin. Maybe some of you in in Sunday school class or in vacation Bible study, you remember the song that we used to sing as kids growing up. You remember it. If you remember it, sing it with me. The The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. Go ahead, sing it. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down and the floods come up. You got to say it like that too. You got to sing it like that. That's exactly right. I've got to make it so simple everyone can understand it. You know, on June 16th, 1965, there was a wall of water that came crashing down 
in Denver, Colorado. The South Platte River was swollen and downtown Denver found itself under 15 feet of water. In June of that year, the front range of Denver, not just throughout the month, but in a single day on that day, June 16th, received 14 inches of water in three hours. Now to put this in perspective, the front range of Denver on average receives 14 inches of water in an entire year. Can you imagine getting 14 inches of water in three hours? The flood destroyed or damaged 5,000 homes, trailers, farm buildings, 6,700 small businesses. In 1965, that added up to $543 million in damages. If you were to translate that into today's economy, that's about $4.1 billion. Imagine the shock as people watch their homes and business disappear. The news cameras, by the way, caught fleeting glimpses of people in their pain and devastation. The shock watching the homes collapse. The photos of their families being swept away. A decade later, on August 1st, 1976, on the 100th anniversary of our entrance of of Colorado into the United States of America, another flood hit. They called it the Big Thompson Flood because it went through the Big Thompson Valley and it killed over 140 Coloradans. In 2005, in August, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf part of the United States of America, there was repeated warnings, there were repeated warnings that a storm was coming, a storm was coming. And my father happened to be one of those people in that storm. But he had come to this country in 1948 and hurricanes had hit the Gulf Coast time after time and he had lived after storm after storm and he quite literally just simply didn't believe them. And then when Hurricane Katrina came about 12 hours before the storm struck, my father began to realize that this really is something unlike anything that he had ever seen before. And he got in his car and he started driving towards Mississippi in order to run away from the storm. And who would have guessed that he was actually just a little bit in front of the storm. And when the storm hit on the east side of the Mississippi River where my family lived, the whole neighborhood completely vanished underwater. Storms sometimes come with warning. Sometimes they don't come with warning. Jesus has spoken about two roads, one broad, one narrow, two trees, one that produces fruit and the other one that remains barren. Two foundations. One will stand, one will collapse. And some of you may hate that. You may hate the fact that Jesus uses categories so often. But Jesus will divide and categorize the world into sheep and goats. He'll categorize people as those who have a wedding garment and those who do not have a wedding garment. 
There are two kinds of lives, those that are prepared for the ultimate test and those that remain unprepared for the test. Two builders, two structures, two foundations, and one great big storm. Look at verse 24, the two builders and the two foundations. Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who's built his house on the rock. It may seem inconsequential to you with that very opening statement of therefore, but he puts it therefore because he's making reference all the way back to chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's talking about the sum and the substance of the sermon and everything that's been said. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'm going to liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The stress in that sentence is on the issue of obedience. Jesus likens the obedient hearer to a wise man. By the way, in the ancient world, the rabbis debated this subject over and over again. Wise rabbis would say, what's more important, hearing or doing? What do you suppose they concluded? Most of them came to the conclusion that hearing was more important because how in the world are you going to be able to obey unless you hear that which has been spoken? But even the rabbis conceded that hearing and obeying were both important. The wise builder selects the firm foundation. By the way, Paul will use this exact same metaphor to describe himself and his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where, where Paul writes, according to the grace, the grace of God, which has been given to me as a wise builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the secure foundation. The righteous citizen in God's kingdom is characterized by obedience to the king and his commands. And when we think of obedience as a proof of identity, you'll discover in John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, they hear me. They hear me, and then they do what I say. They hear my voice, they recognize my voice. Not only is obedience a proof of identity, but it becomes the meaning of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it just so happens in, on Wednesdays, we're going through Hebrews chap, chapter 11. Even there, we're finding ourselves towards the end of the chapter. But in verse 8, it basically talks about the reality that faith is obeyed. Faith, And in Romans, G, Paul writes that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we think about obedience as the proof of identity, we also can think about obedience as the real meaning of faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, Peter describes 
obedience as our response to the love of God. We understand about the love of God. We hear about the love of God. Then we respond to the love of God. And then in verse 25, it says, And the rain, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. The Lord ends his sermon with a familiar parable. Two builders, two structures in roughly the same geographical area. We have every reason to believe they use the same building materials. They may have shared a common floor plan. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that for all intents and purposes, both buildings looked safe on the outside because the issue in the story doesn't seem to be on the external look of the building. The biggest difference in the building is the foundation. It would appear that one dug the foundation deep, one shallow, one builds on a rock, the other sand. The one who builds on sand, at first it appears to be safe. The danger doesn't come until the flood comes or until the storm hits. You know, Israel and Colorado have some common features. In Israel, there's a mountain chain in the middle of the country, just like here in the front range of Denver. We're backed up against a mountain range. On one part of the the range, as you approach the range, there is a kind of a desert scenery. The same is true in Israel, and the same is true in Colorado. Israel is is a country filled with hard rock and hard clay deposits. In the summer, with the heat of the sun pounding down on the surface of the sand, even the hard clay deposits look safe. They look reliable. Some builders assume it's safe to build. But the true test doesn't come until the storm hits. And what happens when the rain comes? The warning is obvious. The warning that Jesus is giving is crystal clear. Remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. Build somewhere where you won't be disappointed. And when it comes to your eternal dwelling place, it makes sense to invest properly and to think carefully and biblically to build on the Lord Jesus. Who are the ones who built on the secure ground? The ones who heard and embraced and practiced the teachings of Jesus. Jesus began his sermon with a series of pictures. Remember, about true and false righteousness. About true and false character. About sin and righteousness. One outward, one inward in chapter 5 verses 1 through 48. Jesus covered the great topics of worship, giving, praying, fasting. He's talked about worship. He's talked about wealth. He's talked about our walk. Jesus has issued the tests. 
Will I walk the narrow way in verses 13 through 14? What is the fruit of my life in verses 15 through 20? Am I doing as well as saying in verses 21 through 29? So no wonder we're to be careful where we build. And who are the two builders? Remember what they both have in common. Both have heard the words of Jesus. But only one decides to follow the words of Jesus. You see, each and every one of you have heard the words of Jesus. So many people come up to me and they want out. They want out of their obligation when it comes to the reality of knowing who God is and who's knowing about Jesus. And so in order to feed the fantasy that somehow it doesn't matter about being a Christian, they'll ask me crazy questions like, well, what about the person who's never heard? What if no one's ever, what about the person who's never heard about Jesus? And I'll typically say, I'll talk to you about that. But guess what? You're not in that category. I'm happy to address the issue. But guess what? You aren't in that category. And you might be wrongfully thinking, well, if there's someone who can get away with living a life of rebellion and disobedience against God, why can't I? And I'm happy to report that God is gracious and kind. That no one on the day of judgment will shake their finger at, at Jesus and say, you, didn't, you weren't fair with me. Here's what the Bible says. Will not the God of the whole world do what's right? And guess what? He will. One fails the test. One survives the test because one rests secure in a solid foundation that is unmovable and unshakable. Guess what? The metaphor ends and the parable ends when we think about anywhere on the planet Earth. I mean, in the real world, are there places safer to build than other places? Yeah, in the real world, if you build on the Mississippi flood delta, the chances are you might get flooded. Is it possible that if you build on the San Andreas Fault in in Southern California, bad things might await your future? I think that the answer is yes. But the Bible describes this world as an unsafe and an uncertain place. The Bible pictures in the book of Revelation a scenario where every mountain is removed and all of the earth is shaken and there's nowhere left to hide. So it isn't just simply a good idea to build on a safe place. He's talking about eternal matters, about building on Christ in the solid rock. You know, I've met many people who have a fascination with the Bible. They earn degrees in the Bible. They have PhDs in the history of the Bible and the languages of the Bible and biblical studies. They preach sermons. They cast out demons. They perform miracles. We've already heard about these people. Remember, Jesus has already alluded to them that people will come to Jesus at that day in the day of judgment and say, didn't we... 
do amazing things in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name. And Jesus has already made it clear that these do not serve as substitutes for obedience. Some of us hear God's word and then we neglect it. When hearing results in doing, we're laying the foundation for a life that's pleasing to God. And that's the underlying principle. When hearing results in doing, we're laying the foundation for a life that is pleasing to God. Certainly, Jesus is the solid rock of our faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, For we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, you're God's building. And like I said, the parable is a picture. It's supposed to illustrate truth. And again, I believe that the foundation is obedience to God's word. Obedience is the evidence of saving faith. Saving faith rests Firmly and solely on the person of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. The Lord Jesus wisely instructs where to build. And then what to build. Heaven's real estate is in one earthly sense like earthly real estate. For the realtor who's here, you've heard them say, location Location, and what's the third important thing? Yeah, it's location, location, location. The same is true in the heavenly reality. It's all about location. The wise builder chooses the wise location in order to face the storm. By the way, the wise builder isn't exempt from the storm, is she? Is he? The wise builder isn't protected from the storm. In fact, Jesus points out the main reason for surviving the storm isn't simply the construction materials, but the reality of the foundation security. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Being a Christian doesn't preserve you from the storm. Being a Christian doesn't mean That your life will be rain-free or problem-free. David Livingston once remarked, quote, He is the greatest master I have ever known. If there's anyone greater, I don't know him. Jesus Christ is the only master supremely worth serving. He's the only ideal that never loses inspiration. He's the only true friend whose friendship meets every demand. He's the only savior who can save to the uttermost. We go forth in his name, in his power, in his spirit to serve him, unquote. Building on the rock will take time and skill. And some will attempt to start the project, but then refuse to end the project. Jesus will tell another story at another time about a person who purposes to build a project, but he or she doesn't consider the cost. Building on the rock means that you do have to consider the cost. All of us are building our lives without exception. 
All of us are living our lives without exception. We're investing our lives or some of us are wasting our lives. And how you build your life will determine what kind of a life you'll have now and forever. Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel again of the person who begins the project doesn't fulfill the project, but in the end, each and every one of us will have a life, and then we will give an account of that life. In the the passage in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, when the person who begins building finds out they don't have the resources to complete the, the project, they find themselves facing mockery, ridicule, and shame. And so Jesus says in verse 26, building on yourself, And building on sinking sand doesn't seem right. In verse 26, Jesus says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Remember what we learned earlier? There are believers. And there are unbelievers. And remember, we've already talked about the make-believer. And clearly, there are unbelievers who haven't heard what Jesus said. But that's not true of the make-believer. The make-believers actually opened up their Bible. The make-believers actually read parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The make-believer is going to be familiar with the passages of the Scripture. The Lord Jesus likens the foolish builder... To the one who hears the sayings of Jesus. And and read it for yourself. And does not do them. You know, we live in a culture and a society that sometimes thinks that it's safe to simply know what the Bible says. But it doesn't matter if you really do it. Think about what Jesus is saying. The foolish builders received instructions. From the master builder. The master builder says, choose the right foundation. The same is true throughout your life, isn't it? The master builder speaks to you and says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Choose the right partner. But I love him. He'll come around. And then he doesn't come around. I love her. I think over the course of time, she'll change. You see, the reality is my Christianity will rub off on her. And by the way, is Christianity something that rubs off on people? Here's what you already know. For most people, Christianity rubs them the wrong way. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear. For the person who says... To the master builder, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own choice. I'm going to make the comfortable choice. I'm going to make the inexpensive choice. Or I'm going to live next to water. And trust me, I absolutely understand this. Who doesn't want to live next to a river? Who doesn't want to live next to a lake? Who doesn't want to live next to an ocean? I love lakes, rivers, and oceans. Who wouldn't want to have a home that overlooks the beach? Only the person who 
absolutely is positively convinced that the tsunami is coming. See, we laugh. It's fun to live in a place just so long as everything is going according to the order of this world. The foolish builder is foolish. Not simply because he or she lacks mental means, but moral fortitude. In other words, the foolish person isn't a person who's stupid or a person who's dumb. The foolish person is the the person who's void of judgment because they've refused to hear, understand, and obey the words of Jesus. You know how to build. You simply don't know where to build. The person who says, I can build my own life. I can make my own choice. I can go in my own direction. I can make my own living. I can do what I want to do. And you're absolutely right. You can do whatever you want so long as it's not illegal. And if you decide to do something illegal, you're going to get caught. And so you choose sand. You choose the sand of material possessions or wealth, the sand of pleasure for a season, the sand of stimulation and temporary satisfaction, the sand of fame or recognition and the pride that comes from knowing that everyone knows who you are. You might even have 5,000 friends on your Facebook page. There was a FBI profiler who made the comment that he was doing an analysis and an access. He was, he was interviewing Hinckley about his shooting of the president of the United States back in the 80s when, when he shot Ronald Reagan. And he said, why did you do it? And Hinckley replied, I did it because I wanted to be on the cover of Time magazine. Can you imagine attempting to kill a president because you want to be famous? Or shooting up a school because you want to be famous. Or shooting up a church because you, you want to be famous. Disobedience to the Lord is calamity. Disobedience to God's word results in the fall of man and the entrance of sin into the world. In the Bible, disobedience to the Lord is sometimes pictured as A process whereby if you were to otherwise live a long and successful and prosperous life, it's cut short by premature death because you've rebelled and you've disobeyed God. We see the children of Israel were consumed in the wilderness. Disobedience to the Lord's people often brought a life dominated by their enemies and defeat as it's recorded in the book of Judges where people just simply gave in to their enemies and lived under the subjugation and yoke of their enemies. And that's exactly what happens when you decide to live your life as a Christian apart from obedience and submission to the, to the word of God and the will of God. In the Bible, when we read, and we read it a lot, the three words, they obeyed not. 
I know most of you, when you do Bible studies, you want to do wonderful Bible studies about the promises in the Bible. I do too. I love the promises in the Bible. But sometimes the Bible says stuff that's hard and difficult and that we don't want to study. They obeyed not. And when I looked up those three words throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is loss and downfall and dishonor and bondage and shame and misery. And in verse 27, it says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house And it fell. And look what Jesus says. And great was its fall. It wasn't just a collapse. It was a calamity. Great was its fall. The foolish builder won't be able to stand in the day of trial. Or in the day of the adversity. Or in the day of test. Why? Because the foolish builder was listening. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine. The foolish builder was listening. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine. The foolish person thought that hearing was sufficient. God help you if that's you. God help you if you think that just simply owning a Bible will be sufficient. God help you if you think that just simply coming to church is going to be sufficient. God help you if you think that listening to these words that I'm speaking at this very moment will be sufficient. Because they won't be in the day of trial, in the day of adversity. In the day of wickedness, in the day of pain, in the day of sorrow, in the, pain, in the day of judgment. The foolish person thought hearing was sufficient. The foolish person perhaps grew up in a church and the foolish person heard the Bible over and over again. They may have even had the Bible on cassette when there were cassettes. The foolish person might have received instructions in Sunday school. The foolish person might even have had Christian parents. Did you go to children's church? Did you go to Sunday school? Did you hear these sayings of Jesus growing up? And did you sing the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock? wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And the rain came a-tumbling down. But it never occurred to you that you could be that wise person. Building your life on the Lord Jesus. Building your friendship and fellowship on the Lord Jesus. Building your marriage on Jesus. Building your children's instruction on Jesus. Building your worship life and the community in which you live on Jesus. For all intents and purposes from what 
I have been able to glean from law enforcement officials and church officials and government officials and all of the people who were in Charleston on Wednesday night when we were here preaching, when I was here teaching the message in the book of Hebrews and they were there having a Bible study, they had opened up their Bibles and they had prayed and they had friendship and fellowship with each other and encouraged one another and ministered to one another and welcomed with open arms a person who looked a little bit differently from them, who maybe even acted a little bit strangely but all of the evidence seems to indicate that when the storm hit, they remained strong, committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Did anyone ever say to you, he that trusts in riches shall fall? but the righteous shall flourish as a branch in Proverbs 11, 28. Did anyone ever say to you, he who trusts his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered, Proverbs 28, 26. For the person who says, I'm going to go my way, I'm going to trust my heart, Did anyone ever say to you, for you've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one else beside me. I'm quoting Isaiah 47, 10 and 11, where the person says, no one is seeing what I'm doing. No one cares. No, when I wake up and when I go to bed at night, no one is watching. No one cares. No one sees me. In Isaiah 47, 11, it says, therefore evil will come upon you and you won't know when it arises and trouble will fall upon you and you won't be able to put it off and desolation will come upon you suddenly and you won't even see it coming you may have thought that it really doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you think it doesn't matter what you say it doesn't matter where you go it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter if you do what's right if it doesn't matter if you do what's wrong it doesn't matter if someone's looking or everyone's looking when the rains come and the floods come and the winds howl and the hail starts beating on the surface of your soul, then you're going to understand exactly what Jesus meant. Two builders, one foolish, one wise. William MacDonald writes, quote, if a person lives according to the principles on the Sermon on the Mount, the world calls him a fool. Jesus calls him a wise man. The world considers a wise man to be someone who lives by sight, who lives for the present, who lives for themselves. Jesus calls that person 
a fool. But make no mistake about it. Each of us builds. We're building at this very moment. Both houses are subject to the storm. One will stand the test. One will fail the test. And what's interesting to me is that the storm is the thing that reveals the wise choice and the foolish choice. The storm is what brings about the revelation of the sure foundation or the insecure foundation. And we live in a world of storms and they can come at any time and the wise in heart receives instructions in the storm. And you see, this is part of the point that's different, I think, for both the wise and the foolish builder. You see, the foolish builder can only lament the reality that they're in the storm, but the wise builder will receive instruction in the storm. I like that. For some of you, it's raining right at this very moment. Tell me about it. Tell me about the storm. Is it sickness? Is it sorrow? Is it stress? For many people, they, they live their lives in a constant parade of ruin. Sin, suffering, poverty, pain, rejection, accident, handicap, complaint. And then the flood, mistreatment, pressure, doubt, hospitalization, temptation, abuse, loss. And the revelation begins to unfold. Again, William MacDonald writes, It's legitimate to use the wise and foolish builders to illustrate the gospel. He writes, The wise man puts his full confidence in the rock. Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. The foolish man refuses to repent, rejects Jesus as the only source of hope. MacDonald writes, but the interpretation of the parable actually carries us beyond salvation to its practical outworking in the life of the Christian. Immediate application about salvation, yes. Immediate application on the outworking of your life, I hope so. In what way? For the Christian, again, we live in a life of storms. The unbeliever and the believer both face the trial. They both face the storm. But one sees it as temporary. And one sees it as persistent and perhaps eternal. And of course, the Bible speaks of an ultimate storm. A judgment that will descend upon the, the whole earth. And the Bible says, and it, the house fell, and great was its fall. You know, the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, perhaps most famous for his sermon, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God wrote lots of sermons and said lots of things. And one of the most important things that Jonathan Edwards ever wrote was, quote, you've been warned today while the door of the ark stands open, you have, as it were, once again heard the knocks of the hammer and the ax on the building of the ark to put you in the mind that a flood is approaching Take heed, therefore, that you do not still stop your ears. Treat these warnings with a regardless heart. That means I don't care heart. And still neglect the great work which you have to do. Lest the flood of wrath suddenly come upon you. Sweep you away. And there's no remedy. Unquote. We talk about it, the terrible storm, the unavoidable storm. And what's interesting is there are certain storms that no matter how much you prepare for them in this life, they are so unexpected. But Jesus says there's one storm that must be counted on. There's one judgment that remains certain. The terrible storm of death. A judgment. An unavoidable storm. The real question is how deep have you dug that foundation? Are you supported by Jesus? Are you undergirded by Jesus? Are you held up by the Lord Jesus? And there's a reoccurring message that occurs throughout the Bible. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's it's hinted at in Joel chapter 2 verse 31 and Matthew chapter 24 verse 51. Matthew 25 verse 30. The list could go on and on. But the real issue is what is your life's foundation? For the true follower of Jesus, it's the humble acceptance of his word. It's the embracing of the gospel. It's obedience to his word. On what basis will you be judged? Did you hear the words of Jesus? Did you practice the words of Jesus? And if you've heard the words of Jesus, and you've practiced the words of Jesus, then you've dug deep. So that the storm of opposition, as it presses and presses and presses, your strong foundations remain intact. The man who doesn't hear, or does hear, but refuses to practice the divine truth, experiences the storm the building collapses, the ground liquefies. It says in verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. In this passage, Matthew records the effect that the sermon had on its listener. 
But it also gives us a clue to what constituted the teachings or the sayings of Jesus and the authority that was ascribed to those sayings. The passage reads, and the people were astonished. It's an interesting word in the original language. Astonished. Ek. It means out of. Plezo. It means to strike. The idea being to strike their mind with amazement. My friend Raul Reese, who's the pastor of Calvary and Golden Springs, translates this, blows your mind. (laughs) And that's exactly right. That's an appropriate translation. It blows my mind. That's exactly the point that he's trying to make. John Blanchard writes, Christ's statements are either cosmic or comic. And we can see why. The sayings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the instructions of Jesus, he's basically making the outrageous statement that his instructions will determine how you live now and how you will live later. He claims to be the judge of human beings. He claims that he's the end and the beginning of wisdom. He claims that hearing what he says or refusing or refraining to do what he says link the concepts of wisdom and foolishness together. He defines everything that's wise in relationship to what he says and everything that's foolish in relationship to what is refused to be obeyed in what he says. The unbeliever and the make-believer read the Sermon on the Mount and they're struck by its revolutionary character. Is it possible to read it and study it and fail to grasp its significance? I think that the answer is yes. In verse 29 it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The people recognize that Jesus' teaching is different. His teaching is different. But I think it's more than different. It's divine. The scribes' teachings were pointless and powerless. And everything that Jesus says has a point And is filled with the power to change your life. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write, the consciousness of divine authority as lawgiver, expounder, and judge so beamed through his teaching that the scribe's teaching could only appear driveling in such a light. One person said, his was a voice. Theirs was an echo. I like that. So what do Jesus and his teachings have in common with each other? What traits do they share? Both Jesus and his teachings share the common trait of authority and perfection. You see, I think I've said it repeatedly to you that the Bible teaches that Jesus isn't just simply a remarkable human being. He's God. And he's man. He's not half God and half man. He's 100% God and 100% human. And in that sense, the word of God clearly 
is divine and its origin, human in its transition. The words themselves share both qualities. Jesus, referring to his own words, said, their spirit and their life. Clearly, in this passage, both build a house. Tell me about your house. Tell me about your house. They're building. You're building. Tell me about the life that you have constructed and that you continue to construct. Both choose a foundation. What have you chosen? Where have you decided to build? By the way, it's not too late if for whatever reason you made a mistake. And you said, I couldn't resist the ocean. It was so beautiful. I couldn't resist the lake. It was so enchanting. I couldn't resist the river. It seemed so peaceful. But now you know that the storm is coming. You know that whoever decides to live there will only live there temporarily. It won't survive the storm that's coming. My advice, it's okay to pick a new foundation and dig that foundation deep. Because both heard instruction and both experienced the storm. One experienced a great deliverance. And the other, tragic fall. So what will it be? Sand cannot stand. Build while you can. Thomas Brooks wrote, Christ is a jewel. More worth than a thousand worlds. As all know who have him. Get him. Get all. Miss him. Miss all. It would be presumptuous of me to speak for the pastor of the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It would be presumptuous of me to form words in my mouth or even for a moment dare reflect on the condition of their heart and their soul. Would it be wrong for me to say, That if every man who was killed in that church, every woman who was killed in that church, if we could invite them to share this pulpit and this microphone and ask them the singular question. Would you ever, ever want your life to be the killer's life? The killer's faith. The killer's hatred. Or would each and every one of them say, without exception, 
I chose my foundation. And it's still firm. And when Jesus becomes your firm foundation, he becomes your secure future. This morning, one's in jail. This morning, nine are in heaven. Where would you rather be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, for the person who is wondering, is this, could it possibly be true? Could it, is there even the remote chance that what Jesus is saying is true? Lord, I pray that you would invite them to consider that Jesus wasn't content to simply speak these words, but he will live that life and he will die on that cross and he will come back to life to forever, forever, to forever, forever, forever prove that everything he says and everything he does is true, true, true. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Amazing girl.